Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. In January of last year, January of 2022, Netflix released a movie entitled Munich, The Edge of War. The movie is about events that transpired before the beginning of World War II. It tells the story from the perspective of two friends who became friends at Oxford and now years later are on opposite sides of the looming war. I can't vouch for the veracity of all the details in the movie. In fact, I did some nosing around the Internet and can say that the general outlines of what the movie depicts were absolutely true. There were attempts even at late hours to avert the coming catastrophic crisis. There were those who worked to stop Hitler. There were those who tried to do all that they could. But in the movie, there's a document, a document of which the two friends become aware, a document that is said to give the realities of what Hitler is planning. Because in the public arena at that point in time, Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of England, and others were thinking, all Hitler wants is the Sudetenland. Just restore to us that land which we believe is appropriately ours, and now all will be well. That's where things will end. But the document says much more about his real plans. I won't say more about the movie in case you want to watch it. I don't want you to say my pastor spoiled it for me. But I will say this, whether or not the document in the movie is based on it and is accurate in its details, of one thing we can be certain. After World War II had ended and the captured Nazi documents that were discovered was found, something called the Hosbach Memorandum. The Hosbach Memorandum had been penned by a man named Friedrich Hosbach who had recorded the goings-on of a meeting that took place on November 9, 1937, between Hitler and his military leaders, where Hitler outlined his plans, and they went far beyond the Sudetenland. They spoke of basically taking over the entire European continent. Well, the hope of the two young friends in the movie is if we can get this into the hands of Neville Chamberlain, maybe understanding what's in the document can change things. I don't know all those details, but I do know this. There is in the book of Revelation a document, the understanding of which can change everything. So we come today to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This section has been spoken of by scholars as maybe the most important section in the entire book because an understanding of what comes out of this section will form our thinking for all that is to follow and even for our own lives. So remember where we left. We left off with the echoes of the messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor slowly dying in our ears. Remember those churches, seven lights 
in a dark night, seven little outposts in the Roman Empire, seven little rafts floating on the vast sea that was the Roman Empire. They had been chased out of Palestine, persecuted, killed, tortured. And now in these locations, small though they be in the Roman Empire, the force and the might of the empire was beginning to turn its sights on them. And once more, they were experiencing profound reasons for fear. They had reasons to ask questions. They thought Jesus would have come before this. And now on the run from their homeland in a different place, new people being added, but new, pers new persecutions arising. They had reason to ask, does heaven care? Have we been forgotten? And then we come to Revelation 4. Before we read it, just a heads up. As we read, watch for the occurrence of this word, throne. In the original, it appears 14 times in this chapter. So whatever else this chapter may be about, it is about the throne. We are in the throne room of God. We are at command central of the universe. What we observe taking place here is how we can understand how God runs things, how he governs his universe, how he interacts with and deals with a world in crisis. So with that background, Revelation 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne... There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes. In front and in back, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You're a member in a house church in the vastness of the Roman Empire. You're wondering if heaven cares. You see the threats looming like beasts around you, and you have reason for fear. And John 
looks into heaven and says, God is on the throne. God is on the throne. And for that reason, if for no other, you can be at peace. God is on the throne. Do not fear. There's something here that I want to point out to you. We can't spend our time on it today. We will deal with these themes in the next to last sermon in this series. But it's very present in this chapter, so I have to at least point it out. It gives us an opening insight, a peek through the window, as it were, into how God runs things, into how God governs his universe and governs this, governs this world. Three things notice. The first thing you notice is that when it comes to God's throne room, his place of governing, there's an open door. Open. Access. The second thing you notice is that there are other thrones. God is not the only one who sits on the thrones. Others sit on thrones wearing crowns. Others are part of a participatory government. 24, symbolizing no doubt, the 12 patriarchs of Israel, Old Testament, the 12 apostles, New Testament church, symbolizing all of us. In other words, all of us have a say in the government of God. The third thing to notice, there are eyes everywhere. Everywhere, in front and back, under their wings. Eyes all over the place. In other words, there is nothing secret here. All eyes are on God watching everything that happens in this participatory government to which all have access. No wonder they worship. That's what that does for me. When I think of that kind of God running things, I want to fall on my face before him and say, you are worthy, God. You are worthy. Much more on that later. But for now, just an opening insight into how God runs things. But then something happens. Something that becomes cataclysmically important. Because there in the throne room of God, the governing center of the universe, there's a crisis. A profound crisis. And that crisis has to do with a document. I want to just ask you to note a couple of things about the document before we speak more of it. First of all, this document is written on both sides. That's unusual for documents in the ancient world, unusual enough that scholars have a unique name for it, opistograph. It describes ancient documents written on both sides because most are written just on one side. We're not told exactly why it's written on both sides, possibly because the contents are so voluminous one side couldn't contain it. Written on both sides. 
But secondly, this document has seven seals. Seven seals. It is sealed until one who is worthy can break the seals. So Marion Wagner, a member of our congregation, she tells me at times along the way with the help of her husband Bob and daughter Jessie, created this, a scroll written on both sides, sealed with seven seals. The reason it's important to have the right visual image in mind is simply this. A document sealed in this fashion cannot be read until every seal is broken. You cannot open the document and roll it out and read its contents until every seal has been broken. That's what we discover about this document. It's written on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, don't succumb to the temptation of thinking that this document is of interest here in Revelation chapter 5, and then we move on. This document is central to all that happens in Revelation. Ranko Stefanovich, Revelation scholar, happens to be SDA, gives us an overall outline of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, prologue. That's how we begin with the contents, as we spoke of last week, of a letter. Then chapters 1, verses 9 to chapter 3, verse 22, is the seven churches. The command to write to them, the messages that were sent to them, take up those chapters. And then chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter eleven nineteen, is the opening of the scroll. The opening, the breaking of the seals, the unsealing of the document, and all that accompanies that. And then starting in chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5, is the contents of the scroll. This is what is contained in the scroll. And then finally, chapter 22, verse 6 to verse 22, is the epilogue. And that is the book of Revelation. Meaning that other than the, the prologue and the epilogue and what is sent to the seven churches, the book is focused on the scroll, on opening it and reading what is contained therein. Why is the scroll so important. What exactly is the scroll? Almost certainly the scroll is the document that describes not only what's coming in this cosmic conflict and how we as people on a planet and especially as Christ followers are caught in the crossfire, but it is going to describe God's plan. God's methods, God's way of dealing with the cosmic crisis. It is of essential importance. What's in this scroll? So Revelation 5 and verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It is in the right hand of the one on the throne. This has its origin in God. 
John sees it. And for obvious reasons, his entire focus now is on opening the scroll, breaking the seals, finding out the contents, because such a desire is driven by questions like, is God in control? Where are things going? What is our future? Will God use methods that will free us, that will finally, in the end, bring us victory, that will bring us into his kingdom? Or is the world governed by chance? Is there no future? We must know what's in the scroll. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. catastrophic, absolute catastrophe. If the word throne governs chapter 4, we're in the throne room of God, we're at the center of the universe, then the word worthy governs chapter 5. Who is worthy? Again, Ranko Stefanovich writes this. Worthy is the key word of the whole chapter. In John's day, it denoted a distinctive qualification that made a candidate fit or eligible for a highly honored office. Such a qualification was based on outstanding achievements such as prowess and bravery that were displayed through success in war. Who is there who has achieved a noteworthy victory on the field of conflict in this cosmic crisis? Who has achieved such a reality that can actually then rise to the level of breaking the seals and reading the scroll? Who is worthy? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. A way of describing in that day and time the comprehensiveness of God's creation. No one, no one is worthy. The scroll will stay sealed. We're on our own. Verse 4, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Please do not picture an old man with a few tears trickling into his beard. The language is strong. Different versions, TNIV and NIV, I wept and wept. NRSV, NLT, I began to weep bitterly. Good News Translation, I cried bitterly. English Standard Version, I began to weep loudly. Body-racking, body-heaving sobs. 
because John must have thought, we're on our own. We're on our own. Nobody has won a victory in this cosmic conflict sufficient to elevate them to the level to tell us where is everything going? Where do we go from here? I cried loudly and bitterly. And John does not weep alone. The same tears are wept today. When one who has no faith, no God, no future, stands at the end of the cancer road, the bedside of a loved one, She's gone. There is nothing more. I wept and wept. These bitter tears are wept by those who say we have to act, we have to save the planet in some way. Within years, we're going to die asphyxiated in our own fumes, bereft, alone in the universe. Wept. It is in Macbeth, that scene in Act 5, history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, meaning nothing. Wept and wept. New Testament scholar Buist Fanning writes this John's reason for crying is not just foiled curiosity, the pang of disappointment and not being privy to the scroll's contents. In view of the cosmic significance of this scroll, his bitter grief is over the apparent frustration of God's redemptive purpose. It is the deep lament shared by God's people through the ages, including his readers in the first century, when everything they have hoped and prayed for under God seems to have come to nothing. Fortunately for John, such weeping lasts only for a season, and what reassures John should give all God's people renewed courage and faith as well. Because following... Verse 4 is verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John, weep no more. John, stop your crying. John, dry your tears. Someone has been found who is worthy. And then the elder uses two loaded terms. Lion and root and offspring of David. Somebody has been found who is worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root and the offspring of David, these were terms buried deep in their Israelite past in the Old Testament scriptures. 
John would have heard those through those ears. The lion of the tribe of Judah will conquer the nations. The lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who will restore us to our proper place. No longer the tail, now the head. Vanquish the peoples who are foes of God's. We will win. The root of David. The restoration of the Davidic dynasty. God's promises fulfilled. Don't weep, John. One has been found who is worthy. And then something happens. Something that happens at different moments in Revelation. An understanding of which will help us understand some key passages. It happened last week. We just kind of breezed by it. It happens this week, so we're going to stop and take note. It's the experience John has when he hears something. Scholar after scholar notes this. When he hears something that is noteworthy, and then he turns to look and see what it is, and he sees something different. He hears one thing, he sees another, they're different, but in the end, they're the same. Last week, I heard a voice behind me like the voice of a trumpet, and that voice told him to write this down and send it to the seven churches. I heard a voice behind me like the sound of the trumpet, and I turned to look, and I saw a figure standing in the midst of the candlesticks. I heard a voice, I saw a figure. They're different, but they're the same. They're both Jesus. It happens here. He hears the voice. John, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and offspring of David, is worthy. And John turns to look. Here's what he sees, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, right in the center of heaven's governing room. John hears the voice, don't cry, the lion, and he turns to look, and right at the center, he sees a slaughtered lamb. Different, but the same. No wonder scholars say this passage may be the most important passage in Revelation. Zygvitonstadt, in his excellent commentary, listen to his words. Revelation presents Jesus as a victim of violence in the book's most pivotal scene. 
This feature ensure that Jesus is presented just as he is in the other books in the New Testament. Cruelty is rampant, but the cruelty targets him. When this has been missed, and we have evidences of this being missed throughout the Christian centuries and millennia. We hear, don't weep. The lion will vanquish, will conquer. And we go out empowered to do just that. Evidences everywhere. When this is something we don't understand in our own personal lives. When we seek to live as disciples of Jesus in the book of Revelation and when difficulty and challenge and persecution, sorrow, suffering, and death come into our lives, we say, where is the lion? This isn't as it should be. Critical to understanding the scroll and all that will come. Because what John sees is when it comes to the cosmic conflict, God will win in the power of the lion, in the might of the lion, but through the methods of the lamb. The might of the lion and the methods of the Lamb. We must hear that. It changes everything else from reading Revelation to living our own lives. If we are going to walk with Jesus through the pages of Revelation, through the pathways of our life, we have to understand that the footsteps in which we place our feet are bloodstained. A slaughtered Lamb. Who is worthy? Who has won a sufficient battle on the field of contest in the cosmic conflict? The Lamb. And suddenly planted right there in the center of the throne room of God, we see an old rugged cross. And we realize this is how God wins. The might of the lion, but the methods of the lamb. Make no mistake, we are dealing with God, high and holy, grand and glorious. The God of whom the writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. We are dealing with the lion. but he's using the methods of the Lamb, even in Revelation. Mark Twain, decades ago now, wrote a book titled A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I used to love to watch the movie 
this Connecticut Yankee all those years travels back and is in King Arthur's court, has talked the king into shedding his royal robes and, and putting on commoner's garb, and now they go out among the people, and the foibles are mostly humorous. But there comes a moment, a moment when they come to a, a shack Death and destruction are all over the place. They will discover that it is a shack where people have and are dying from smallpox. The woman of the house seeing them come says, For the fear of God who who visits with misery and death such as be harmless, tarry not here but fly. This place is under the curse. In other words, get out of here. Save yourselves. The king replies, let me come in and help you. You are sick and in trouble. So finally the woman says, would you climb the ladder into the loft and see my child who is dying? The Yankee observes it was a desperate place for the king to be in. It might cost him his life, but it was no use to argue with him. And the king climbed into the loft. These now are Twain's words. There was a slight noise in the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other. He came forward into the light. Upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15. She was but half conscious. She was dying of smallpox. Here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed, with all the odds against the challenger, no reward set upon the contest, and no admiring crowds in silks and cloth of gold to gaze and applaud. Yet the king's bearing was as serenely brave as it had always been in those cheaper contests where night meets night in equal fight and clothed in protecting steel. He was great now, sublimely great. The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace now needed an addition. I would see to that, and it would not be an armored king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb, bearing death in his arms, that a peasant mother might look her last upon her child and be comforted. A king in commoner's garb, bearing sinners in his arms. A king, the lion, in commoner's garb, the lamb. This is God, high and holy. The grand and glorious God of the galaxies. The God who is a consuming fire, the lion, but using the methods of the lamb, stepping down to bear you in his arms, even in Revelation.
That. That. That is the tender God of the apocalypse. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.